Why do people go bald? Why are baboons' bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why do monkeys like bananas? Why do some things glow in the dark? Why do animals not understand you? Why do my receipts fade after a year? Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientists with me, Sue Marchant and Dave Ansell. Alan is on the line right now. Hello, Alan. Yes, hello there, Sue. You're through to Dr Dave. Hello, Dr Dave. Hello. It's a a three-part question, actually. Um, First of all, the atmosphere on the moon, is it possible to light a fire? Would it be any any means, unless you had your own oxygen, would there be any means of just lighting a fire on the moon? Um, the atmosphere on the moon is almost non-existent. It's really, it's incredibly tenuous. It's far, it's probably less atmosphere on the moon than there is um, around the um, International Space Station, a couple of hundred kilometres up on the Earth. The only things which are there in absolutely minute amounts, um, sort of probably millionths as strong as um, dense as the Earth's atmosphere, probably less than that. Um, there's a f- few things um, which are emitted by radioactive decay of elements on the is part of the moon itself. So you get a little bit of radon released and a few other, um, a little bit of helium from alpha decay. But other than that, there's almost nothing there. When the um, uh, lunar landing took off, um, how did they get that to ignite? Wouldn't that need oxygen to get it going? Yes. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what kind of rocket they used, but they definitely would have taken um, all of the... So it, you can build, make a rocket in space by taking hydrogen and oxygen and burning the hydrogen in, o- in oxygen. Or you can use other more um, unstable liquids. You can use things like hydrazine, um, which I think which is very unstable and will just decompose of its own accord into nitrogen and hydrogen, probably ammonia. Um, although I'd have to check that. Um, so, yes, if you want to use a rocket in space or somewhere where there's no atmosphere, you need to take all of the elements to react together in your rocket. Right, well, the final part of the question is that when, quite often, if you see any of the um, uh, science fiction films and that, and you'll see meteors going through space, uh, quite often they show them burning. Um, now, w- would that be an impossibility if, if a, a meteor was going down onto the moon's surface? Would it just be a lump of rocket in the surface, or would it have any kind of... Um, tail or... Tail or, or impact explosion or... Um, as it came down, it would almost certainly just be a rock. Uh, well, if it was just a rock, it would just be a rock. If you threw a rock at the moon as it came in through the virtually non-existent atmosphere, it would probably would hardly heat up at all, and it would just be a rock which suddenly slammed into the moon, at which point you'd have a huge amount of energy released, and you'd, there'd be basically an explosion. Um, but sometimes, I guess, it's probably a lot of artistic licence, but you might get some effects whereby if it's not just a pure rock, if it's a bit of, um, if there's a load of dust associated with it, so if it's a rock with, with dust which has kind of been blown off it a bit by the solar wind or something, if the, if that dust caught the sun, then you'd see the, the, the dust behind, around the rock lit up by sunlight, and that might produce a bit of a tail because this is what causes a comet's tail. So basically, anything entering into the moon atmosphere um, is just going to be virtually unaffected and, and possibly zero friction. You're pretty much near enough zero friction, yes. Um, Therefore, any qu- uh, crater would be enormous. 
compared to Earth. Although there's less atmosphere on the Moon, um, there's also less gravity on the Moon, so I'd have to do the calculations or have to... um, It's effectively a very difficult calculation to do because it's all about air resistance. I'm not sure whether the same size meteorite would make a bigger crater on the Moon. But for the for the same speed of hitting of come yeah I mean I think basically you will probably get a bigger crater because it's not going to be slowed down by the atmosphere at all. All right, well thanks very much for that. All right, Alan. Thank you. You take care. Okay, bye bye. Bye bye. Now, Doctor Dave, uh, John in Peterborough wants to know what is the actual size of a train's diesel engine and what is its fuel consumption. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Well done, John. <laughs> um, I've been looking at the fuel consumption. I think it obviously very, it's very dependent on the size of the train and what kind of train it's doing and whether it's going up and down hills. But various of them are sort of talking about for a largest train, sort of passenger train with eight or ten carriages is of the order of, give or take, sort of about a mile a gallon. So, But remember, you've got 500 people on there, so, so, so that's pretty good going, <laughs> actually per person, but for the actual train, around a mile a gallon or sort of a couple of gallons a mile. That's good, actually. How many, how many people do they fit into a train carriage seating in that? Oh, sort quite. of, nine, again, it just depends on how many carriages, yeah. but 90 yeah. or 100, so yeah. that's quite big. And the actual engine size, again, it depends on the kind of the train you're talking about because some of the smaller commuter trains have actually got a diesel engine under each coach. So that's probably the sort of similar size to a truck diesel engine, mm. um, sort of you know, four or five times bigger than a car engine, sort of in volume. Um, the big ones where you've actually got everything in a power car at each end, they're going to be a lot bigger, probably taking probably not more than a third of the size of the front coach, because I I think a lot of the reason why the, you know, the City One Two Five diesel trains, yes, um, the the high speed, the older high high speed ones, which are diesel, I think they could have had passengers in the front and rear train, but, but they weren't allowed to because mm. it was illegal to have passengers in a, in the front front ca- coach of something going that fast at the time. Mm. Yeah. All right, okay, so about um, so, big big gallon a mile, gallon a mile, give or take gallon a mile. <laughs> How many litres is that? <laughs> About four. Yeah. About four, OK. Um, we've got Dave on the line. Hello, Dave. What's your question to Dr Dave? Um, is it possible that in their formative years, um, say two to 3,000 million years ago, early life forms started um, rotating left and right due to being north and south of the equator. Uh, so you're th- th- things um, like that you're thinking about um, in comparison with the way things are, um, the climbing plants are that's, that's twisting right. right and left. And shells. And, and shells do, um, I would doubt that very strongly because you're right, uh, if you have something big which is um, sort of moving in towards the centre um, like a hurricane where air is being sucked in towards the centre right. it will start to spin anti-clockwise in the northern hemisphere and clockwise in the southern hemisphere and, and similarly if air is moving away it moves in the opposite direction um, the smaller you get though the smaller that effect is um, um, well I'm thinking about extremely small I'm not talking about life forms as we know it now I'm talking about um, even pre-cellular yeah um, there's Yes, you're right. Um, I think on that scale, the, the what's called the Coriolis force, which produces this, this rotation effect as something moves in towards the centre, would be absolutely minute. If you actually do the experiment with um, letting um, water go down a plug hole in the north and su- south, southern hemisphere, unless you're incredibly careful and use an immense, perfectly circular bath, the, the result is pretty much random, depending on exactly how you poured the water in and whether you kind of swirled it slightly with your hands when you're washing your hands or whatever. 
Um, and so on the scale of a sink, it's not really noticeable. On the scale of individual molecules, it's going to be absolutely minuscule. There is a general tendency for for molecules of um, organic molecules to twist in one direction rather than the other um, on average. And we're not definitely amino acids on average twist in one direction, not the other. It's called chiral. They, they twist light in one direction rather than the other, the polarization of light in one direction. And no one's really quite sure why life seems to pick one direction, not the other. It could be just pure f- fluke in that if you've got a load of enzymes designed to work with um, with molecules which tend to twist light to the right, then you're not going to make any which twist light to the left. But I'm, I think no one's really sure why it's one way or the other. Various people have suggested interesting things to do with polarised light coming from other parts of the galaxy coming in. But um, I don't think anyone's really sure. And this gravity yeah, is actually polarised? Um, I don't, as in with a twist to it. Yeah. So I, I don't think there's been any evidence for gravity making things twist one way rather than the other. Because gyroscopes are polar, polar aren't they? Um, as in, if, you, if a gyroscope is twisting clockwise and you hold it up, then it will um, process in one direction. If it's twi- if, uh, then it will kind of move around like a spinning top in one direction. If you spin it anti-clockwise, then it will go in the other direction. No, I was thinking more of the... Um, there was a Christmas lecture one time and a, a professor on there was holding an axle with a wheel on it, which was spun up. Yeah. And um, he, as he turned it around, it actually became actually lighter. He could lift it up and hold it up with one hand. And he turned it around in a kind of a clockwise direction. But you didn't see him try and turn it in an anti-clockwise direction, um, where I believe it would have kind of buried itself in the ground. It will definitely move downwards... Um, I'm not sure about gyroscopes. I, I've, I've seen references to that lecture, um, but I haven't really looked into it in depth. Um, I th- I'm fairly sure, because he thought there were some various interesting effects with gyroscopes, which we didn't really understand, but um, I'm fairly sure that all the effects he was talking about are explained with fairly com- conventional physics. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think, yeah. Because I was wondering whether the gyroscopic effect is actually... Um gravity um gravity centrifuge um gyroscopes do very very strange things but it's all actually just more they're, they're so strange more because our brains aren't designed for coping with things that were spinning because we never evolved in an environment where anything was spinning fast and all the strange effects with gyroscopes whereby they'll, they'll try and stand up and if you've if you've held a spinning gyroscope, if you twist it in one direction, it actually wants to rotate. It feels like it's it's actually trying to rotate in the opposite direction when you're pushing it in. Yeah, well, I brought a motorbike. Yeah. And I use the um, gyroscopic effect of the front wheel to actually steer it. Yeah. Um, very very powerful. You rock, Dave. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> no, that's no, that's great. Um, but oh, that that's all explained with. Um, fairly simple physics. It's just that our brains aren't very well designed for. for it feels very unintuitive. Dave's is. Where's his <laughs> motorbike? Um, yeah, I, I try, it's not very easy to explain without something to hold in to front hold. of you. Yes, <laughs> I'm, afraid. I'm sort of trying to see if there's something in the studio here for for you, um, Dave. You'll have to start bringing a few props in, I think, that, that will help you. Well, you can do it with a bicycle wheel and a couple of handles. If you yeah. actually spin it and sit in a rotating chair, or a chair that's capable of rotating, with your feet off the ground, you can actually so get somebody to spin the wheel. Yeah. And then by tipping it one way or the other, you can actually turn around in the chair without touching anything. 
Yes. Um, one way of thinking, uh, one, one way of thinking about it is that if you have, if you imagine a wheel that's spinning clockwise, this is going to be quite hard to involve very good imagination. This one, if you imagine a wheel spinning clockwise. Um, and if you think about a part, a part of that wheel, a particle of it, if you try and push it, twist it away from you, um, so it's sitting horizontally in front of you, if you try and twist it away from you, then that particle is going to move clockwise. And when it's moved 90 degrees around the wheel, it, you're, going to, that's going to be, you're going to be trying to lift that up. And when that's moved 90 degrees around the wheel, it's still going to be moving upwards. So that's going to cause the left-hand side of the wheel to try and lift. And then when it carries on twisting to be opposite you, then uh, it's now still moving upwards, but you're trying to push it. You're, you're try, trying to twist the wheel, f- push the wheel forwards, which means that you're trying to push it downwards. So it's going to be fighting you, mm. and so now it's going to be moving downwards slightly. So by the time it's got to the right, it's going down. So if you try and rotate it, push a gy- um, rotated gyroscope forwards, it will actually. That's going clockwise. It will actually twist right. Um, it's all. It's incredibly unintuitive, but it's all a consequence of quite simple physics. It's a, a fascinating thing, gyroscopes. I love them. Dave, has that <laughs> answered your question? Um, I don't think anything, anything will. No. You're very, you have a very inquiring mind. I know you come up with some brilliant questions. Thank you ever so much. Sorry about that. You take care. No, don't be, never be sorry, Dave. <laughs> okay. Okay, take care. Bye. Cheers, Bye. Bye. Um, Daniel has sent an email in with a question. When you cut a piece of paper, do you cut through atoms? How can you cut a piece of paper without splitting some of them? You probably won't act, You won't be splitting atoms themselves, um, in some senses anyway. Um, okay, uh, a piece of paper is made up of lots and lots of fibres, um, and of fibres, mostly cellulose fibres, cellulose being uh, it's, a, it's another polymer made out of lots of little sugar molecules all glued together in great big long lines. Um, it's what makes up the structure in most plants, in the cell walls of plants. Um, so paper is made out of long fibres of mostly cellulose. Um, and when you cut one of those apart, you will probably break up and break up these cellulose molecules. But as so, a um, cellulose molecule is made up of little rings of um, carbon, oxygen and hydrogen atoms, rings of carbon atoms with oxygen and hydrogen atoms attached to them, and all glued together in these big long lines. And when you cut them, um, you probably will rip one atom off another atom um, in order to break these molecules, because they're so long you will be chop- breaking up molecules. Um, but the atoms themselves, an atom is made up of... A few electrons flying, electrons flying around the outside, yeah. and in the centre, an incredibly dense nucleus. Um, and the density. So, if you imagine um, the atom was the size of um, what's the Millennium Dome, to take an example, which I saw recently, rather large one. Yes. Rather large. The, the nucleus itself will be about the size of a football in the centre of it. Yes. So, if you imagine a load of, of balls about the size of the Millennium. Um, dome yeah. kind of atta- attracted to it, it's sort of stuck together. Um, but in order to split the atom, you'd have to split the thing the size of a football right in the centre. Yeah. And also, you're splitting when you're chopping something, you're using other atoms to move through it, and the atoms repel each other. So it would be so you're never going to get your atom very anywhere near the nucleus of the um, of the of the atoms in the paper. Mm. So what you actually do is you push the atoms apart and break up molecules in some cases. In other cases, you're breaking the bonds between different molecules. 
um, but you're not actually breaking up the atoms themselves. Um, you could possibly um, separate some of the electrons off the atom, which in some senses would be, it's not normally what we call mean by splitting the atom, but you're, you're, you're breaking, in some senses, you're breaking the atom up a bit, you're taking some electrons off. Um, I, this definitely happens when you crush sugar. Because if you get a pair of pliers um, and sit in a very, very dark room for a few minutes, let your eyes get used to it, mm-hmm. and you take the pliers and crush a sugar cube, you, see little fa- you can sometimes see little flashes of light. And this is because when you break up the sugar crystal, sometimes some electrons get left. Oh, yeah. left or if you imagine the crack, more electrons get left on one side of the crack than the other side of the crack. As you pull the two, as the two halves move apart, the voltage builds up until at some point all the electrons run down to the closest point and jump across as a spark. And little flashes you see are little sparks going on inside the sugar, in between I can sugar crystals. Just imagine you doing that, <laughs> sat in a darkened room as well. <laughs> now, what about um, if you have a blood transfusion then, Dave? Do you pick up any of the donor's DNA? You might get a little tiny bit, but not, um, but not in a way which will stay inside you very long um it, most blood transfusions i think are mostly red blood cells mm. and i don't know if you've ever seen a picture of a red blood cell they sort of look um like if you imagine a, a ball yes and then squishing it from the top to the bottom to form almost a donut yeah so it's, it's not not without it hasn't actually joined up to form a hole in the middle but it's it's squished down and the they actually lose their nucleus which contains most of the dna in a cell um and so red blood cells have got very little DNA in them. And also they can't reproduce. So um, although there may be a little bit of um, DNA in what are called the mitochondria in the red blood cells, these are the little um, creatures, they're almost like little creatures running around inside your, your cells which produce energy for you. There is a bit of, D- I think there might be some DNA in those. Yeah, yeah, fact, yeah there is a little tiny bit of DNA in those. Um, but... Um, the, because there's no nucleus there, the cells can't reproduce. Um, if you had a blood transfusion which included white, included white blood cells, then you'd have there'd be more DNA, but still they won't reproduce of, of themselves because your blood's all made in your bone marrow. And there are what are called stem cells, which are the cells which produce other yeah. s- more cells, and those are for your blood all in your bone marrow. So, but um, so although you may have a bit of someone else's DNA in your blood for a while, it once your uh, once your body re- remakes the blood, which will take a few weeks, there won't be any left. Um, uh, if you had a bone marrow transplant, on the other hand, then you're transplanting the stem cells. So these are the, the cells which are making the um, new cells. Sure. And so all of the new cells will then have um, the different DNA, DNA in them. Yeah. All right. Okay, that's answered that one, Bill. Um, now this one here, Pat wants to know if there is life on other planets, all the people who see things, I think he means UFOs, says Sophie can't be wrong. Um there are definitely an awful lot of astronomers looking for life on other ma- planets. Um, it's just conceivable there might be some signs of life on Mars or li- life having been on Mars. And that's what NASA's spending hundreds of millions of um, dollars trying to find at the moment. Um, um, the Phoenix mission has landed a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. and they've just managed to get some soil in their analyzer, which they're very happy about because it, sure it, wouldn't, it wouldn't go in to start. <laughs> <laughs> it got stuck and wouldn't go into the analyzer. Um, and so they're looking for things which might indicate there is life about. Mm. Whether there's life in our, other than life in our solar system is possibly un, is, is very debatable, possibly looking more and more unlikely. Um, but there's an awful lot of solar systems out there in the, yeah. in our galaxy, and there's an awful lot of galaxies out there. So I would personally, I would have said odds are there is 
almost certainly some form of life. Certain, very definitely, I would have thought, simple life somewhere else in the universe. There has to and be. And probably intelligent life somewhere else in the universe. Mm. But whether it's close enough for us to, to actually to find us is another matter. And I'm, I'm very sceptical of, <laughs> of the people who, who, who claim that they've um, been um, abducted by aliens. It's possible. I mean, there's no reason why, in theory, it shouldn't happen. Anything can happen. But there's not very good evidence for it. Mm. All right, well, here's something um, talking about the ether. Jim in Holkin says, Hi, Sue, can you ask Dave, when you send um, a text somewhere, and, you know, they'll often say, oh, put text 123 to... 86425 or text A or hear that. Um, if you don't, and, and if you don't put that there, we won't get it. Do they get that actual text? Or if they don't get it, where do those texts go? This is where they, they say text French text a to, to, yeah, French to, to 849101 yeah. or get whatever. Get a brochure about Paris or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, basically, I think, I'm not sure, I, I'm extrapolating from what I know about the system, that Probably what's happening is all the text gets sent to a central computer and it's probably expensive to have a text number attached to a computer so they want to be able to use it and it probably takes a long time to set up so they want to be able to use it for various different things. Making so, money. So when it, get, <laughs> when it gets to their computer, yeah. um, they then want to be able to sort the, the text messages for different reasons and so they'll then look for, a, for the, the, the um, characters at the beginning of the string which says, I don't know, send me a car or cabbage or whatever yeah. and then it will take all the text messages and put, and put it in one folder a bit like when oh, you right, get yes. automatically yes. sort emails yes. yeah. um, and then all the others will probably get sent to another folder mm. and then depending on the organisation on how many text messages they're getting every second whether someone will look through that folder or not yeah. is and, debatable and so if they don't get it it could just go into it, I mean it, it's, dig, it's digital it, if it, you, you can just lose it that's it for this week our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget, you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. <laughs>